Welcome to the Zion Art Podcast, dedicated to exploring the art and culture of Latter-day Saints through interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars. The podcast is presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. Today we are joined by the sculptor Adam Thomas, whose exhibition Creation, Expulsion, Redemption is currently on view at the Jacob Spory Art Gallery at BYU-Idaho. The culmination of 20 years of thought and work, the exhibition explores the story and doctrine of Adam and Eve in some 27 works executed in a large array of materials, methods, and techniques. Adam Thomas, I don't want to get too much more into the into the uh, the details um, until because we've got a lot to talk about. There are a lot of works. I am so grateful that you're here. Um, let's talk about this show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. I appreciate it. Now, I I wanted to start off with a question. You begin um, with your artist statement. Um, you know, even before I ask a question, I just want to give an impression of something. Even before looking at the works, I looked at a at, at a catalog you had given me, where you had uh, you, you had described each um, each work, and I got to say, usually when I read art catalogs, because I <laughs> you probably have the same experience. Correct me if I'm wrong. Art catalogs can either be great or terrible. There's almost no in between in this world. Is that your experience? Well, I, I, it depends on what you're about to say. No, 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 no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wouldn't bring it up if it was negative. I wouldn't bring it up at all if it was negative. In fact, I walked I, as I was reading through it, I felt like this catalog in and of itself is a major contribution. Wow. Thank you. It was. Um, I, I hope that it's available um, uh, in some form that people can read online. I will include for the works that we talk about on the Zynar website. Um, the descriptions that you've written un, unedited in any way. Um, and I just, you know, I just want to um, ask you um, about your process of writing the catalog. Was it something done in conjunction with the works or was it done after the works had been made before? Um, does it, or does it depend on the work? Well, it, it, some ideas, some ideas develop more conceptually than, than, uh, uh, they'll come to me in, in certain concepts, certain ideas, and so I will mull around an idea. So I'm sculpting with an idea. I'm sculpting with the concepts. I'm trying to align these little, um, these unconnected dots that I'm trying to connect. And uh, I tell my students this, that, that uh, a stop sign is this thing in art funda in, in, in uh, certain terms, it's an object this high, it's a certain shape, it's a certain color, it has a perimeter, there's a pattern, there's text, there's a color, and there's a context. And we take all those little kind of odd points and we line them up and it becomes a stop sign. Hmm. So if I can take these little kind of odd moments and line them up one with another, I can create something and focus the vision and idea and manipulate materials to kind of drive or direct hopefully someone's someone's thoughts and i and uh, and they're receptive to what i'm trying to say you mentioned your you have students so tell us about where you teach i'm doing an adjunct gig at byu idaho uh, where i'm in the second semester of of three and uh we'll see what happens next uh what levels i'm not are going you? back full time it is beginning it's entry level it's adjunct yeah. stuff so 
Um, it's fun. I'm the oldest of five boys, so uh, tormenting the naive and innocent is way so part of my my skill set. Um, At least you're aware of it yeah, and not just yeah, doing it mindlessly, it's, right? No, it's, uh, it's very purposeful, <laughs> and and uh, you know, usually the only weeping and wailing is you know the the uh, the technical stuff and the frustrations on their behalf, and not the cruelty of the professor. How much is writing a part of your work? Because I found that these it was just beautifully written this catalog, and, and I'll use an example. Um, uh, an example here. Um, the second work in the catalog is Maiden Voyage. Uh, that it, its its media is oak, sinew, and tea. And you write, Eve was symbolically created from Adam's rib. Old world boats and large ocean going ships are shaped by ribs. Boats often have female personas. Each a vessel that carries precious cargo both leave a wake effect, a ripple. I just, I found myself so captured visually by what you wrote. And I thought, you've got to be writing a lot at the same time that you're making things with your own materials. Is that well, my, my, my doodles are doodles, but then I start writing the words down around this thing. And, and this piece is, is maybe kind of an, a good indication of the, the question you just asked before. I... This, this is one of four pieces that I did in graduate school uh, 18 years ago, um, but it still carries... Which was in kind Texas. Of it carries, yes, in the University of Texas at Austin. And, um, you know, I, I was a, a husband and a father, had three little kids. My graduate experience was not the same as all my friends who were running off to weekends to, to Marfa and to Houston and doing all this kind of fun. You know, I was teaching primary and mowing lawns on the weekends, so... Golly, um, there, there are a lot of things to do in, in Austin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's, a, there's a big art scene all the way around on the, on the state, in, in the state. And I, uh, you know, we were studying Old Testament, and there was that Eve made from a rib. I thought that was cool. I kind of looked up all the imagery, you know, went and looked at, at pictures. Um, a week later, I'm watching National Geographic with my little children. I mean, they're kids. And there's this whale carcass washed up on a beach, and it's upside down, so it looks like the ribs of an old ship. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then, and then I made that connection between um, ships and boats and Eve, and um, and I thought, oh, a woman is vessel. That's really interesting. And and uh, you know, I looked some of that up. I've seen it done in ceramics. I'd kind of seen it painted. You know, I've seen some stuff like that. And I thought, how do I make that my idea? How do I kind of build my own thing on that? And, and at some point, I made this connection. Well, I'm Adam, and, and my wife is the Eve to my Adam, and she's the mother of my children. So I ended up doing a shadow drawing of my wife, half, three-quarter, and side view. And I transferred that to some blocks of wood that I cut on there. And then I did 12 layers of edge veneer, one-inch oak edge veneer, mm -hmm. and laminated in those shapes. So it's like a three-dimensional line drawing of a woman. Um, wow. and, but I had all these loose ends, and I didn't quite know what to do. And, and so at some point, you know, the, uh, I'm a carpenter. I've done lots of things. I've built a lot of different stuff and, and uh, have confidence and familiarity with a variety of materials and processes. And I thought, oh, I'll bolt it up. I'll put some brass ocean going. It won't rot in the seas. And I went to go drill my first couple holes, and the piece kind of just said, no, don't do that. <laughs> I thought, well, I've got to come up with a better attachment on how this all goes together. 
And at some point I got this notion that if I drilled holes in a certain pattern and I sewed it together and I'd mm. sew it together with what? Oh, okay. Yarn. So, you know, and that's sinew. There's this gut. There's this thing, this stuff that holds us together. That's perfect. That's great. And I ended up doing it that way. Where did you get your, your gut? Your oh, it's, sinew? it's, you know, at the, at the leather store, at the, at the fabric places, it was something that was, you know, it didn't take too much to find that, but it seems like one of those substances that we would think of as being so unavailable to, to, to most people, but sinew and gut was used for generation for thousands of years for all kinds of purposes. Yeah, bindings, and, and you soak it up, and you tie it off, and it shrinks, and Musical instruments, everything. Yeah, and then then at this point, I'm like, oh, great, I'm going to stain it, I'm going to shellac it, I'm going to seal it, and I went to go do that. It's like, uh, uh, uh. And, and I thought, well, what do I do? And I lived in Texas, and so, you know, sweet and unsweet tea is all over the place, and I thought, oh, I'm going to whip up a big batch, a real strong batch of tea, and so I stained it with tea. So everything is this you know, these, again, lining up these points to so that they all interlock and weave and kind of give me this idea of an individual object made of ribs, a vessel, and had a, had a female and feminine persona and technique and materials. This question, th this, this piece gave, um, as I was reading your description of it, as I looked at images of it, I found myself um, immediately going to a pet issue that I have. And it's, it's something that I feel like is, it, I feel like there's a fashion right now among Latter-day Saint artists and patrons, and in particular, the church itself as a patron of art, as it solicits artworks for its various publications and so forth. There is this hyper focus on historical accuracy. And to me, that historical accuracy, I get why, pe why people are, are interested in it. But it's, it's, it also denies one of the purposes of art to have symbolic power and purpose when you're worried about whether or not the shoes that are being used in a particular piece are historically accurate. So here's so I mean for instance I had I a conversation <laughs> I, well and this is the beauty of it is that I was having a conversation with an artist a little while ago and he was saying well you know this idea of a blonde Eve wouldn't have been even possible because she had there were no recessive genes in the Garden of Eden which is something that would have never occurred to me right when I read your piece this is getting back to my my point and when I read the, the compare the, the 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 use of boat sim, um, symbolism of, of her as a vessel of journeys of all, all the imagery that came to mind and the power of that that imagery I would have been so angry if somebody said well you know from all we know the Garden of Eden was landlocked and so there were no boats and there was no ocean yeah <laughs> I mean it's almost you'd hear that kind of it's it would seem almost absurd to put to bear on a, on a work of art that it has so much symbolic power the burden of 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 some kind of to me superficial historical approach to something and one of the I guess the question that I'm that I'm coming at is um, you know, when you are, uh, as, as somebody who's working as a conceptual artist and who has such deep concepts and is able to freewheel with different, freewheeling with different metaphors, um, how do you find your audience reacts to metaphors like this that they have never 
considered because it's not something that they're used to yeah, to seeing in their lexicon. It's an odd thing because I, I, I will, like I said, write a lot of this stuff down. And it does take a while to, to line these unconnected dots up and or, or kind of push them until they merge. And, and so I'm always reading and researching and trying you know i'm not getting into the technical stuff and i don't care about historical accuracy about a lot of things but and i'm not saying you should at all it's in it's fact i'm saying that it's great to, that you're not yeah it's just trying to kind of find the right language find the right words and, and so i'm trying to give people two points of entry on this one is is a title and a, a title and then you get the little kind of descriptive paragraph and you read more than anybody really is ever going to get. And I could probably talk for another 20 minutes about this piece, you know. Um, but if I can put a title in there, that might just square someone's shoulders up and give them just a little nudge in the right direction. Yeah. So that idea of maiden voyage, this first, this virgin, this first time out and, and the first vessel to kind of leave the dock and to kind of push off that wake effect of not just the water, but of genealogy and, you know, ancestry. So... Again, these are things that I'm working towards, but I don't want to like give the farm away. It's nice to talk to it and get people, you know, all yeah. they're, you know, I'm dumping a bucket of water over their head when they're just kind of grasping their first two or three sips of something. And and uh, it's important that I kind of resolve these things. And I don't know that it really matters that everybody's getting all of that. Yeah. I just hope that I just give them a little nudge and they're going to bring their own their own baggage, their own history, their own experience to these things. And, and it's quite often that people have their own thoughts and their own ideas and they're moved by you know impressions that are coming to them about it i find that one of the things that 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 fascinates me about latter-day saint visual arts is that we have we have a very um something that that, that existed for a very long time in 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 many cultures whether we're talking about buddhist or christian cultures hindu cultures is uh, an audience that already knows the symbolism on some level, and you can immediately tap into it, and therefore you can have a conversation maybe more quickly than when you are a graduate student at tech in Texas doing religious art to a group of people who, I guess, in Texas you'd have a lot of religious people who yeah, would but understand. Not among my general. professors, you know, and, and they weren't skeptical. They were good at, you know, finally when I opened up and said. Look, these are kind of some personal beliefs, and I was hesitant to kind of give that away. I didn't want that to, you know, stand between me and my instructors. But when I finally confessed a little of this to one of my professors, he sensed my enthusiasm, and he leaned forward and kind of poked me in the chest twice. He says, why aren't you making art about that? You know, mm. he could feel that kind of vibration and that energy that was wow. coming out of me as I was describing it, because I was making a different kind of thing, and it was still had family and ancestry, and kind of, but it was these kind of mechanical and these physics exercises, and and uh, so they were a whole different creature, and, it, and when he gave me permission, kind of in a certain way to kind of reach out into, into the, you know, plumb the depths of spirituality without it being religious or without it being preachy or without it mm. me feeling like I was imposing things. Um, you know, these are, it, it's kind of one thing to, to kind of have your own ideas and, and the way we look and interpret things. And that's kind of truth, small T, lowercase T. And when we rub up against that, you know, people sense the things we're trying to do. But when we come up against, you know, spiritual um, truth, capital tree, it, it kind of rubs off. Mm. Um, and so at some point when you, 
you have some mastery, not the wrong word, but some confidence in your materials and processes. You know, you're not just doing line, shape, form, color, texture, mass, value, you know, all that kind of stuff. There is this other thing that is spirit, and you can kind yeah. of, you know, that um, matter unorganized. You're taking this pile of goo and you're spreading it over something. You're taking, a, you know, a stack of wood or some other objects, and you're you're putting spirit into these things, and um, it conveys. If you again line those things up, they we interweave and interlock with each other, and and it engages. In the catalog, you start off with your with your artist statement saying, uh, "While told as a simple story." The, it is often overlooked and misunderstood. The exhibit is an exploration of the ideas and concepts surrounding the story of Adam and Eve. I want to talk about just that idea of it being misunderstood. Well, I, it's, it's this funny little story we hear our whole life. You know, as little kids, we get told this Adam and Eve story, and it's very simplified. In primary, we get a different version. In seminary, all of a sudden, we're, we think we're doing some studies on it. And we begin to understand it as we become adults. And at some point, the most important thing we do is go to the temple. And what's right in the middle of that experience is this story. So what is it that we don't understand? This story seems to be bigger than just the version that we hear. And so what, what do we need to understand better? What do we need to, how do we grasp what's trying to be taught to us? It's, it's one of these spectacular stories where... Um, you know, we're surrounded by symbolism and imagery and sign and token and metaphor. Um, and then there's this idea of an icon that maybe represents power and authority and money and influence. But the story of Adam and Eve is this archetype. And it's the thing by which a lot of other things are measured. It's the yardstick. So what don't we understand? And so, you know, I can take the stories that we have and the, and the, and the, things we understand and I can fill in the blanks. I can fill that gap. Um, you know, there's this piece called um, Blood Brothers and it's this idea of, of Cain and Abel. And it's really interesting in, in, in Moses we get this we get these, I think it's chapter 4 or 5, we just get this really quick first 17, 18 verses of about Adam and Eve and you know they're, they're Adam's glad for the fall because he can be redeemed, and Eve is really excited for the fall because she can have children, understands the nature of eternal families, etc. And it's just quick, 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 punch, you know, all these little punch points. And then there's this, like, 20 or 30-verse section about the seduction and the fall of Cain yeah. and how he is... <laughs> You know, the thing, you know, his his devastation and how he's lured away from the things that are important. And I thought it's really interesting. And so this piece is this altar piece. And it's at the altar that Cain and Abel, their their separation begins. It's their motivations for sacrifice. And it's so an interesting this, little altar, this little altar piece is a is a. There's a block of stone with a slab over the top of it, and and Cain is portrayed as a as a farmer, and so I've got a scythe that comes up and the big beautiful kind of reaper's blade, mm. and Abel is portrayed as a shepherd. It's this crooked little stick that has a ram's horn across it, and it sticks up, and the blade crosses the neck of Abel, and so this isn't at the fall, you know, this isn't at the death. This is just the thing that becomes the rub. This little thing that builds between them, Abel's sacrifices are accepted and Cain's are not, and the the, the distance grows between them. 
I feel like this is one of those subjects that we've almost, as a culture, maybe I'm, I'm not being fair enough to our culture, we've adopted... Because we've adopted other religions' take on this story um, and are working to have our own version of it. This is true of a lot of, of, of Latter-day Saint um, stories where we, we, we kind of build on and then eventually separate our own interpretation from what has existed before us in 2,000 years of, or 1,800 years of Christianity. And so we're, we're developing our own version of what the crucifixion meant. And it seems to me that, that we've got this really strong uh, structure of an Adam and Eve story that is fundamentally um, different in many ways than other Christians tell the story of Adam and Eve. And, and we still haven't made a lot of great literary masterpieces from our different interpret from our different version of Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. I was so glad to see your blood brothers piece in this because I feel like one of the things that we get to last in our, um, our pursuit of, of our own doctrine are the villains and the ugly moments. Like, I don't even know if we've got our own version of, of uh, Christ pushing money changers out of the temple because we don't like to focus on angry Christ, right? No. And 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 I don't think we like to focus on on a murder of Cain and Abel. And and but it's essential to the story. It's, it's essential. It's one of these things that you know, and that's part, probably part of the story is that we hear this, but we don't. Maybe we don't delve into the into the depths of it. We don't spend enough time kind of really pondering the the depths of these things. I remember as a teenager who was kind of feeling, you know, church was dumb and my friends were cool and all this stuff. My dad really kind of pushing family home and he's in these, you know, we're going to read scriptures and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I just wasn't buying it. And he said, you know, these were real stories. These were real people. And I mm. thought, well, yeah. And he goes, no, this, Adam, these were, these were real people. And I said, sure, dad. And he goes, look, one of the coolest stories I ever fell in love with was this story of Nephi on the run, tiptoeing down the back alleys of you know, Jerusalem and, and, you know, guys are looking for him and he's scared. He's going to get beat up or killed. He already knows the guys are after him. And as he's ducking around a corner, he trips over this body and it's this guy. And so, you know, my 15 year old kind of dramatic, you know, I'm engaged with this story now because it's not, and it came to pass. And so thus this and the other. Yeah. And he says, and so there's this thing that happens, you know, Nephi killed this guy. Are you kidding me? You know, he may never have ch killed a chicken. You know, he may have offered help, you know, off walk the goats to the sacrifice or whatever. But, you know, we don't know what his experience is with blood and a blade. And at some point, the angel just says, kill him. Yeah. And it's not, you know, he's not going to lop this guy's head off like in the movie. It's just, and it comes in and goes flying through the air. You know, he's got to like hack his way through this neck and sinew. And it's it's gory, right? And, and how Caravaggio. In, yeah. in a 15 year old, I'm like totally engaged, you know, because hack, hack, chop, chop, saw, saw, blood, sinew, mu muscle. Then he's got to undress this body that's bleeding and dying. Yeah. And I was like, oh, the scriptures are really cool all of a sudden. And I started seeing these in context as real people, boots on the ground, feet work, working the fields, you know, suffering, living. And, you know, I, I was filling in the blanks. I was reading the stories, but I was kind of living their life in the gaps. Mm. And, and that's what a lot of this is. Um, 
that's what a lot of this show is, is me just kind of wondering, God, you know, what did that mean? Or what was that like? After the fall, there's two pieces called um, Lay of the Land and Celestial Navigation. It's probably not on your images. But I have Celestial Navigation right here. Um, know, let's Adam, let's talk about tripod, that piece. He's a surveyor's tripod, and he's got to figure out seasons, planting, short-term, long-term. You know, the spirit's not animating his body anymore. There's food to eat. He's got to plant. He's got to sow. And so the, the tripod comes down to the ground, and it touches the ground in the form of a hoe and some weed pickers. And behind him, there's a little two-step Behind that tripod is a little two-step ladder, and it has a feed bag full of seed that is cascading down the steps, and it forms into a furrow. So he's got to—he's got to—you know—he's got to provide, preside, and protect. Right? That's the—that's the proclamation on the family. The celestial navigation is Eve now after the fall. She's standing atop a three-legged. Um, fruit ladder. So the, yeah, and you've got this and this so cherry picker ladder that's above the yeah. furrow and above the celestial map on the yeah. ground. And so her, she's she's atop this this fruit ladder, and she's got a spyglass eye single to the glory of God, and she's looking at the heavens, and she's building her earthly home, which is a which is a tablecloth on the ground with seeds scattered on it in the pattern of the constellations. So she's building her earthly home after the pattern of her heavenly home. And at the top, there's a little nod to the Relief Society. There's a little doily, and there's some salt and pepper. There's a apron hanging from the side that has a little wooden spoon. The apron has constellations on it. And there's this seed spreader. And so she is spreading, you know, as her seed are going out, she's building her family and establishing a certain pattern. Now, that little doily, did you mean that ironically, or did you mean no, that No, I, I, I think it's a nod. I think it's a nod to the, to the sisters who just do things so much better slash different than we do right someone gets sick the sisters show up pans of food salad prepared you know this that they'll show up with food feed the family do the dishes and leave with the laundry right the brethren show up two frozen pizzas a salad in a bag and a couple of two liter bottles of soda so you know they just do it so much better than we do something that i found um th as a theme throughout because you 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 treat Eve is consistently a character throughout, and, and Adam is consistently a character throughout. I find that a lot of the, the, the things that you, you associate with Adam, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I, I've, of course, I'm, this is my own interpretation as I've read through the catalog a couple times linked as the works, is that, you, well, you've got Eve as a character often looking towards the heavens, and who is dealing with a lot of spiritual work on a on on a um, on a familiar on a family on a family level, and and it also seems to me that she is she is thinking on a very high level, yeah. on a conceptual level about things, and Adam is often thinking about Sweat things brown. on a on a on a on a on a, on a physical level of getting things uh, getting things done on on a on a on on a, on the ground she is the 10,000 foot view he's the ground view he's boots on the ground and and i find that um this is uh, this is a time where we're thinking a lot about gender politics is something that it's very hard to to, to get a, to 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 not address head on without immediately stepping into controversy sure and 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 i think that adam and eve is a very are are very useful metaphor and very fertile ground 
for us to have discussions that are useful and positive about the roles of men and women. And I didn't know how much of it was subconscious versus conscious of you having heard the 10,000-foot view, or even if that's an accurate conception, and him being on on the, on the ground level. An, an earlier version of that celestial navigation was in the, the International Church show a year ago, and it was only a four-foot version of a ladder, but it had a plumb bob hanging down the center, and there was a little um, uh, gold... Uh, pattern drawn on so from from the top of the ladder she could see past this temptation which was a little coil of leather and she could see the the top down view of the plan which was this little gold pattern and this this kind of merging lines of of you know a a straight narrow path Um, and and she's the one who kind of says hey there's this thing it's kind of over there and we can't get to it where we are now and so but we need to do this and you know So part of this, you know, I'm trying to kind of understand cultural politics and all this kind of stuff. But part of this is just my experience. You know, um, so often, you know, it's my wife and I are talking about something and she'll say something and I'll go, that's ridiculous. Or I don't think about that or that's not quite the way I see it. But guess what? She's right. And I'm I'm two or three steps behind. And maybe that's just my experience. But, um, you know, there's a sensitivity there of of certain things in women's role that's different to the sensitivity that men have in men's role. And that's that's we see that as a doctrinal statement from the church. We see that in kind of in conceptual things. We see that in cultural things. And I think, you know, our cultural problems are based on kind of drawing hard lines in the sand instead of, instead of letting letting things kind of happen the way they do. You know, there's this idea of doctrine and doctrine always feels like um, lines in the sand of what you can and can't and will not allow and this, that, and the other. But a principle is a larger thing. Yeah. And it passes through and around these hard lines in the sand. And it's and it's like a Venn diagram where more things are overlapping and they're they're less isolated yes. from each other. I see and, and I, so it's a it's a it's there's a lot of crossover in what we can and can't and what we think we will do, but those are are social or cultural constructs, not principles. And I, I found myself coming to him over and over again, listening, uh, uh, um, and, and maybe I'm being too autobiographical in, in well, sharing these Well, that's where this stuff thoughts. comes with me, so I'm not, I'm not declaring no, and, 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 I, and I'm I just, not you know, saying this is, this, is, this is just Adam's no, twist and I, on and the things that I'm thinking and looking at. This is why I was so excited about the show, is I saw work like this where you have the ladder and Eve being high up, um, looking at the, at the far view, and Adam being down on the ground and incorporating that into his, his work on the ground. And um, I, I found myself, so I was raised by a feminist. I consider myself a feminist. I, and I find, I find myself um, in, in our time um, being very happy that we're having a lot of discussions. We are. And I think that even in my lifetime, I saw Eve being someone who was a scapegoat in the very beginning. Well, it's a super Christian to someone who, to look down on her. Yeah, to look down on her, to someone who is who is actually being very proactive and far-seeing. And I feel like you've captured that in your work. Thank you. And I think that, that also part of what we see is that... Um, is that there's a tendency in our culture right now to, because of so many of the issues that are coming out as part of Me Too, which is an ongoing discussion, to, to um, as a man, I often feel like, oh, when are we going to get it right? And, you th- and it then bleeds into an interpretation of Adam of, oh, you know, he's such a Homer Simpson. You know, how come he just can't, he just can't see ahead right. of things, right? Which I think is... Is not always a. It's not a, a helpful or accurate view. It's often and a tendency of our time to look down 
on and and to demean and the challenge is like you're saying to not look at one as being superior or inferior one being better or worse but the real challenge that i think is an ongoing challenge is to see them both as being partners in this having different roles and i don't even understand entirely what the different roles are when i look at show when i look at a show like this and i see the works that you're coming up with when you had that ladder and her up there and him on the ground but them both being connected by the celestial star right and this little chart, tripod thing and the, this, I, it, it it for me clicked on they're measuring where they're going and how they're getting there i couldn't i couldn't immediately say oh yeah, yeah this is what men do and this is what women do it wasn't that for me which i think is often the temptation of our age is to say this is this is what men do better or this is what women do better in fact it was it was just like you say a venn diagram of overlapping of they're both doing something at a very high level and what they're doing is different but it's not entirely clear what um, what what is uh, what one is better at or not it's just they're both working at a high great. level that's great i love that it's not clear because i i think um, you know the the best maybe too over dramatic of a statement but the best art for me is stuff that i walk away from and there's these little unanswered questions right. you know there's this little mental itch that three or four days later you're like i wonder what that meant or you wake up in the middle of the night or a week or so later you go oh, i think that's maybe what that means you know you come back to it over and over again and there's this little thing that's vibrating buzzing around in your head and you know, the stuff that I look at and I go, oh, two plus two equals four. Okay, check. I'm yeah. done. And I'll never think of it again. I'll look at it and go, uh-huh, know what that is. Been there, done that, and and walk away. And so those two pieces have a lot of things that are going on. Yeah. And, and some, like Blood Brothers, is minimal. Um, another two that are minimal, and they're both alter, alter pieces, is... is um, for supper. That's exactly where I was going to go next. I actually had it right up. I'm so glad that you brought it up. And it's this it's this large slab. Um, it's not a slab. It's about a 13 by 13 inch, 8 foot long piece of limestone How that's much? resting on some skids that's resting on a 12 inch. And so it's this long slash table slash kitchen table slash altar. And Just um, a practical question. Yeah. How much does it weigh? That's about 800 pounds. And, yeah. and we needed, you know, a flatbed and a forklift and some wheelboards and floor jacks. This and begs a question for me, um, which is I, I just find this absolutely fascinating because you are so conceptual in a lot of these works here. But you could have said to yourself, I'm going to have a conceptual altar rather than a heavy piece that is going to be a difficult to schlep around. But that, right? that's that idea of and, first altar. And there's power in having something with that much physical weight <laughs> that, that, that communicates yeah. the gravitas of an altar and actual gravitas, right? Well, thank you. And so the question I have is, um, is, is when you're choosing these materials, um, how, when do you choose and say, okay, I'm going to make this hard? I'm going to make this hard to move. No, it, it, I think that becomes a pie product. You know, I, I'm, I'm at the point where I, I got to make the right thing for the right reason. And when all of a sudden it's the right thing, I, I'm going to do it if it needs to be in bronze. And I'll save up some money to do it bronze. If it's going to be stone, I'm going to pay to have it delivered and, and you know, get a forklift to, to, to dig it out. Um, and and that's, that's the idea of lining these 
unconnected dots up, you know, connecting these dots, pushing them in line and to, to merge and form. And so this, you know, the early versions in my sketchbook, maybe a couple of years ago, it's just like, oh, we have a last supper. Well, gosh, who would be the first supper? So I'm starting to look at all these eating things in the New Testament. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, we've been, aha, you know, all of a sudden body isn't animated by spirit anymore. And they walk out of the garden eating and go, I don't know what that is. I'm hungry. You know, they had never. And so they need something to eat to physically sustain themselves. And early versions was this huge slab of sandstone and this kind of buffet of herbs and fruits. And Eve is woven a basket. And Adam's got a little hoe, kind of, you know, just way too much. Mm-hmm. And I've just been knocking it down and just kind of bare, getting this down to the bare bones. So there's three kind of organic wooden bowls that are more stump-like. Um, and one's filled with wheat and one's filled with not filled, but there's just a layer of wheat. There's just a few grapes, and then there's some olives. So these are these are symbolic foods that are not only physically sustaining, but they become spiritual food too. Mm. You know, wheat becomes bread, becomes body. Grapes become wine, become blood. Olives become oil, become spirit. And so there's this stuff. So I'm again layering and building, mm. and maybe not everybody's going to get that. And at one point, I thought, oh, I'm going to pull this this food out and let people figure that out. But I don't want to make these big, huge leaps. I want to. I want to give them enough so that they they taste it and then think about it, um, look at it, and ponder that. Oh, that great, cool. That, you know, I don't. They may not get the food, but at some point that will build. To me, one of the the, the real revelations of the first supper, other than just the brilliant concept of there being a first supper after we, we, we have a, <laughs> Thanks. have so many conversations about the last supper, is this this notion that that there isn't a great deal of separation in this early stage in their minds potentially between um, the, re- the the worship on an altar and the eating on that space where you're worshiping the gratitude and and the the, the di- direct connection of sustaining your body with sustaining yourself spiritually the idea that they don't have a lot of furniture It's not just practically that they don't have a lot of furniture. It's potentially, right? It's the idea that there is actually some, uh, almost a seamless connection between the altar that you pray and sacrifice on and the altar that you sustain yourself, your body off of. That there is that connection. I'd never, ever, ever thought about that until I, until you connected the altar and the table. Well, we, in, we do in this in a lot of other ways too, though. You know, we're, we we pray over our food, and we you know we partake of the sacrament. And that's an altar, and we, we see that. And there's this veil. You know, there's these things where you know we have all this stuff that goes on. We're just not kind of connecting the dots between these things that feel like there's a lot of space between them. And and a, you know the other you know the other kind of you know they walk out of the garden and it's just them. And, and they have to figure some things out. You know, just because they were innocent didn't mean that they were naive or stupid or uninformed. Um, I really believe in, in a God and a father and a plan that says, hey, look, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you all the information you need to know. And at some point when you're ready, you get to do this. Yeah. And that's part of the beguiling to me. That's part of the little twist is, is, you know, there's this plan. And instead of it happening organically through Adam and Eve or them figuring this out, and this is this is Again, the, you know the truth according to Adam. You know I don't know how doctrinal or anything this is, but and the, you know and, and Satan steps in and says, "Ha ha! Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna manipulate this to my benefit." That's the twist. Is Eve's like saying, "Well, yeah, that's kind of what we were gonna do anyway, but let's let's uh, okay, let's pull the trigger." 
And, you know, it's just, it's just like being oversold. You know, you get that steak and it comes out and it doesn't look like the one on the menu, right? We've all been there. We've all been manipulated or enchanted or beguiled in a certain way. And so it's not a, it's not a hard thing to give her a lot of credit for being super savvy, courageous, super courageous, um, and seeing the wisdom and then just kind of getting sold this thing that just isn't quite what she thinks she's getting, but it's going to get her where she wants to go. Yeah, I love that. And, and it's, it, it's so the rest of the Christian world really does kind of look down on her, and she gets a bad rap, and she's looked upon as as, as dumb, as fragile, as, as you know, the, the problem with the world, and, and, and look at all the problems that have come out of that attitude. Yeah. You know, as a, as a oldest of five boys, you know, we were a disaster. We broke everything wherever we went. There was this wake effect of death and destruction. Um, you know, we, we punched each other. We, you know, there was this thing. And then I had, you know, four kids and four girls and two boys. And I learned a lot about women the hard way as a teenage boy mm. without any sisters. But I learned a lot about women all of a sudden as the father of, of daughters and kind of their sensibilities and a whole different different education now is with with daughters and hmm. kind of understood that you know these the, the things that are, are portrayed and the way they think they measure themselves in in, in the world and, and the things that are portrayed to to kind of help them feel good about themselves is is really kind of disappointing and we only have this shot to kind of give them the confidence and hope and and drive to do the things that, that hmm. will make them best hmm. I want to I want to talk about them leaving the garden in your narrative. You have them in a work called um, a protection. You have them wearing sheepskins, and and uh, you said in in the catalog that they're often wearing deerskins. But you chose sheepskin for a particular reason, and I don't I don't have any stake in 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 them having deerskin. I I'm not bringing it up for that reason. I'm bringing it up because I feel like um, it was it was interesting to me that you you made a deliberate a deliberate point to say sheepskin is what I'm going to use and this is why yeah it if if we're in, and I read a I read a couple of great books in the last couple of years and, and one of them was temple symbolism and and there was this little who comment, was it what was the um, book Hardiston temple imagery and symbolism by Hardiston I forget her name um but there was this little phrase that said, you know, if we're a people who be believe in types and shadows and symbols, really, if an animal had to die to clothe and protect, keep warm, all the, you know, it would be a sheep. Mm. And then maybe that, that's probably the wrong quote, but it, I made that connection. And I thought, well, I'm going to make this coat of skins, you know, with the fleece on the inside, warm, soft, and the... the the hide on the outside and it's going to be this white sheep a sheep without blemish you know it's going to be all this kind of imagery of the sacrificial lambs that come come to the temple altars in the you know among the children of israel and so you know i thought oh i'm going to make this robe okay now it, and that it, would go right into <laughs> hugh nibley descriptions too where he talks about the golden fleece and yeah. he connects it to Noah. And and I've, he... I've dabbled in that stuff, but it, some of that gets a little too academic and kind of really yeah. too fast for me. But, you know, I, 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 I felt some of those ideas and I've read some of those things and, and, and I thought, Oh, that's great. I'm going to make that. How am I going to display it? Well, I'll get a mannequin and I'll dress that up and I'll put it on there. And I'm like, no, that's not quite right. Oh, I'll get this hanger and I'll mount it on a wall and it'll be hanging. It'll be really, um, and I just thought, no, I'm going to find a way to kind of display that. And I thought, oh, I'll, get, I'll make a hanger. And this hanger, um, I thought, I'm going to find a yoke. 
That's great. And I couldn't quite find the right yoke. There was a couple out there, but they were just so, so, so pricey. But I found this this section of harness that pulls behind a, a horse that kind of equalizes the load. And um, I slipped that through the shoulders and then ran the chain across the top and hung it from a hook. And, and it hangs like that now off of a post. So mm. it becomes this kind of pre-cruciform. Um, also you know, directly to the idea of being of, equally yoked. Yeah. And, and these things that we tie ourselves to for good or bad, you know, we harness ourselves to either sin or, or, you know, uh, all the other things we harness ourselves to, or we work towards. Um, and so as part of this thing, you know, hanging from the center of that harness is a little, little brass chain that goes down to a plumb bob. And because it's after the fall, that plumb bob doesn't quite hang on center because there's a big grid, a grid on the bottom and there's a level across the top of the post and it's a little askew. It's about three degrees out of skew. And the hook that it's hanging from isn't straight up and down. It's just cocked a little bit. Hmm. So we have this first kind of sin, but it doesn't go from you know 100 to zero. It just kind of bumps down a little bit. Um, hmm. You know, they're, they're not perfect, but they're not you know, in the degradation of sin. And so it's yeah. just a little askew and they get this thing, the... Uh, the robe is kind of asymmetrical, and now we're connecting back, and he's watching out for us, and we're doing our best to kind of hang in we, there. Can, we can be so catastrophic in our view of sin, can't we? This idea that, oh, no, it's it's not that they're askew. It's that they have, like, just totally oh, fallen off the cliff. Fallen off the cliff. Free and fall, boom, splat. Yeah, and they've got to climb up, and it's going to be— a, it's God gonna be hates a, them. Complete are, disaster. And even though we know the doctrine. And wretched creations. And yeah. that's, oh my gosh, it's just horrible visions of that. I think that that is, I, it's another reason why when I look at a lot of these pieces, I find they're, they're so steeped in hope. You have a lot of ladders that have, <laughs> that, yeah. that are, that are in this. And, um, there's one, um, that I've, I've seen elsewhere um, which is called rising above. Do you want to do you want to describe sure. that work for us? Sure. It's it's just your regular ten foot ladder, you know, one piece straight up and down. Um, except this ladder is in the gesture that's a kneeling gesture. It so looks, instead of a ten foot ladder, it's about a six foot tall ladder, but it's got this gesture of someone kneeling, and it's got the little kind of roll of the shoulders, and it's got the change of the hips and the knees, and there's a little turn at the ankle, and it has some feet. Um, and I, I use ladders and, and chairs a lot, but ladders because there's this, you know, the idea and the imagery of a ladder is up. You know, you're, you're going up, you're getting, you're advancing, you're getting a higher point of view, you're, you're seeing a different perspective. You don't ever really talk about down a ladder unless you've already been up one. So hmm. this idea of this thing that's, that's gone up and now it's humbled itself and it's come down. Everything about this thing is all about up but it's humbled itself and it's kneeling. Mm. And when we're kneeling, when we're down, we're having thoughts about up. And so there's this kind of back and forth between heaven and earth and what we do here versus what we're trying to, where we're trying to get and where we're trying to go. Um, and then as I was constructing this, you know, I'm building it and I'm making all the parts and pieces and oh, I'm going to sand, I'm going to finish it. You know, some of these things come to me pretty well conceptually. And then during the construction or the assembly or as I'm finding the right things, things kind of come to me. And I thought, oh, well, you know, this thing is repenting. This thing is pondering. This thing is asking this, you know, it's not a downer, but it's damaged. I put some bolts through a chain and kind of beat the snot out of it, just totally tore it up and wrecked it. And, 
and I painted it dark and um, shows the wear and tear and the surface mm. history. But on the inside, I sanded it back mm. so that it's cleaner on the inside. It's getting better. It's healing or it's becoming less damaged. And so that there's this thing that's happening not only inside that that when we, we can't judge it by the outside, but on this, we can see the inside. As we're winding down, I want to I want to end with a couple of questions about the, the show in general. It seems like a lot of these works are things you've been working on for a couple of decades. And and uh, now they're in this show as a narrative of, of, of all being together in one place, even though they were probably created at different times in your life. As you were coming together and putting the, them, them in, in a show where they were going to be interacting with one another, uh, perhaps for the first time, what did that do for you as an artist, seeing them all in the same place? Well, um, you're right. I've, I've been dabbling in some of these ideas for a while, but 19 of these pieces are in the last six months. Hmm. I wrote a proposal, and it was only 10 or 12 pieces, but as I started reaching out, I, I found other little things that were happening. So 19 of these are new, um, and then the rest of them have, have been you know, uh, uh, two or three years old or five or six years old, and then some that are 18. Um, it is, though, rewarding that these things, these pieces um, have enough kind of oomph on their own that they stand well nice, but that, that they all vibrate together. You know, there's this communication between the pieces. So it's not a rolling narrative. I mean, I, I put certainly, you know, the, the little stuff that I sent you, you know, there was this sequence of the creative pieces and the expulsion pieces. And right. The they were, they were grouped. Into and, and, you know, I did that just so I could keep track of them. But there isn't this go to one, go to two, go to three. They're all there. And they're, I want these all to be standalone pieces. But they're part of a larger idea. And um, it's nice when you walk in a room and there's an anvil, and there's a bunch of seeds, and there's some ladders, and there's these little vials full of stuff, and there's all these hammers and hoes and rakes and old farm gear, um, and yet they're all doing their own thing, and there's this communication, and there's this connection from viewer to not only singular object, but to the feel of the whole space. I am. I want to go see this, and I feel like, um, and I want to encourage people to go see this too, because it feels to me like there's rarely an opportunity for a show that is this conceptually consistent. It, you know, it's hard to put together shows. It's going to be hard to take this show and keep it together, possibly. Um, because a lot of them are large, they're unwieldy. They take a lot of. It's a big commitment for an institution to show this, and I'm I'm so grateful that BYU Idaho would take the time and space to put this together. And it feels like it's it, now the onus is on us as a as a people to go see it. I hope that it lives on other in other forms. Do you expect to have this online? to have a catalog, to have a way for us to experience this, because not everybody's going to be able to go. One reason why I wanted to do this interview is because I wanted people to have a, 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 an experience with it um, that hopefully they'll go and take and recreate some of it. If they can't see it in person, they can recreate a little bit of it online. Um, 
how do you see what's going to happen after the show's over in, 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 in after February? Yeah, we, we've got to turn that gallery around in a week. Um, and so I've got to get everything out of there, forklift into a truck. And that's the big question. What do I do with this now? I already have two 30-foot storage units full of big object art things. Yeah. I don't want a third. So it would be great if we could find a place to move this, another show somewhere. It doesn't yeah. have to be all of it. It could be four or five, you know, critical pieces. Um, that's that's what I'm searching for next is where can I take this thing and show it and where there'll be an audience that that understands us. You know, this this show is really not uh, an LDS show. These are this is a story that's common to the, to the major religions of the world. And so yeah. it can go to other institutions. It doesn't just have to be, you know, a, hap, a happy LDS location. Right. Um, and so that's what I'm hoping. I'm starting to reach out. But um, it's good to have a conversation with you because my sphere is is significantly smaller and, and I need people to kind of reach out to institutions or help me make connections. Um, I am uh, shooting all sorts of images here. I'm trying to put a catalog together. I would like to get... Um, images on my web page, um, Instagram. I have been slamming a lot of these out here almost every night or every other night. So most of that show is on my Instagram page, and um, and I'm getting a lot of great feedback, and it's wonderful. And there's a lot of people say, oh, "I want to come up to Rexburg." And hey, if you ever need an excuse to go to Rexburg in the middle of January, <laughs> this would be the show. It's on its way to Jackson. It's on its way to Yellowstone. If you're on your way to Canada, come on up. Uh, it runs till February 26th um, at the Spory Art Gallery on BYU campus, BYU Idaho campus. Well, all that information will be on our website on zionartsociety.org under the podcast tab. And what is your Instagram handle? We'll have links to that too. AD Thomas Art. AD Thomas Art. Facebook, Instagram, and webpage. I, I just, I just can't say enough how much I hope that this, how much I feel like as somebody who's grown up, um, with, uh, Jewish family with um, with with the Latter Day Saint uh, roots and 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 with um, having been trained as an art historian in an old master general Christian Catholic and Protestant um, uh, perspectives that there is a, so much new and interesting thinking about a subject that you would already think had explored these and it had been well walked ground a well tread ground but i found myself piece after piece after piece i'm, I'm kind of shocked to hear the 19 oh, of them were created for the you. show uh, it's because been a, busy I, a couple of months because my I, head has been spinning for because sure. i feel like these are things that there was revelation after revelation of thought that came to my mind um, looking at it i sure hope that people and were in listening. building it don't you felt it. that way yeah, absolutely and and it it was it was it was not just in the pieces it was in the writing and the concepts, and and I just I can't thank you enough for your contribution. Well, thanks, Micah. That's high praise. Uh, I appreciate it greatly. Thanks for the time. Well, and and thank you for coming and and, and sitting down and talking with us. So um, I, with that, I'll say uh, I'd like to thank you, Adam Thomas, for taking the time to be here and to walk us through this exhibition. At least part of it. There's so much we didn't cover. Oh, there's a lot. The exhibition is titled Creation, Expulsion, Redemption. It's on view until February 26th. Correct. At the Jacob Sporey Art Gallery on the campus of BYU-Idaho in Rexburg. For more information on dates, times, and for images of the works that we discussed today, you can visit our website, zionartsociety.org. 
Under the podcast tab, there you'll also find our archive of interviews with artists, scholars, and historians exploring the visual culture of Latter-day Saints. Thank you for listening to the Zion Art Podcast. I'm Micah Christensen.